Generations Church, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're joining us here in the room. We're glad if you're live streaming. Uh, just like with Miss Brooke, we are in Isaiah chapter 57. So if you've got a Bible app or a, a Bible you brought with you, uh, please turn to Isaiah chapter 57. And um, just so you know, as we continue to live stream, both our services in person are being live streamed. Uh, as we do that, we're continuing to put up the verses on the screen. Uh, typically in the, in the building, we put up the verses that we're not in. Uh, so anything outside of our teaching verse or any notes, we put them on the screen and inside. We typically have you in your Bible, so get used to that. It's always good to be familiar with your Bible and, and to do that. As we continue to live stream and work out the, the differences between what is shown in this room, what's shown on the live stream, what's shown in the cafe, and all of that, uh, we're still working through that, but one day we hope to kind of pull those off in here, uh, really, and encourage you to know your Bible and, and be comfortable with your own Bible. Um, today, we've had all kinds of technological problems, and so I just want to again tell the tech team, thank you. Man, will you guys say thank you to them? They pull this off all the time. And uh, we've had everything from the live stream crash in first service, not work in the cafe, just you name it, and these guys ran around and got it all handled and so I want to say thank you to them. I hope you guys appreciate them. Will you pray with me? And we will get going. Jesus, we love you. It is you who came and entered into our story. God, long before we ever sought you out, you sought us out. And in Christ, you have redeemed us and brought us back to you. You've welcomed us into your family. We're no longer orphans. We are adopted into your family. We are sons and daughters of you, the God who created the sun and the moon, the earth and the sky, the stars, and us. It's everything else that lives and has breath, God, you created. And so we're incredibly grateful, God, to come together. We know it's by Jesus that we're here. We know that you have given us your spirit that we might draw near to you. And so really, that's what we ask today. Will you speak to us. Jesus, will you speak? We're your church. Let me fade into the background. Jesus, your words give us life. My words, frankly, do nothing. So will you speak and will you soften our hearts to hear your word as we press into the culture and the day that we live in that is so challenged right now? Will you help us to be your people, to live your way, to do what you have called us to do, so Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 57 is, is two chapters now into the final stretch through Isaiah. Isaiah 56 through 66 is the final section in Isaiah's letter, written about 2,800 years ago to a people, for the most part, that read it and heard it 2,700 years ago, and yet incredibly applicable today. And so how we get there is we look at what did Isaiah say? What did God say through Isaiah? As Ms. Brooks said, a prophet like Isaiah is one who speaks for God. He tells us what we're called to do. So it's one who speaks God's word with God's authority to God's people for the most part. And so again, as we look today, this is about us. We don't just read these things and talk about, yeah, how bad the world is, but rather we look at us and that's who Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to God's people back then. And today, you fast forward to the church, we are to be God's people today. And the critique that Isaiah has given the people through all the chapters leading up to this 
is that they look more like the world around them and less like God's people. Easier way to say that maybe for us today is that we look more like the world around us and less like Jesus. When we look at ourselves, we look at the world and we see very little distinction. And what we're looking to do is be a different people. What God is looking for is for us to be different than the world around us. So for those of you note takers, kind of a main idea today we'll put up on the screen. Revival requires repentance. God would love nothing more than to shower out his presence and power on those who profess to follow Jesus. Isaiah says that it is us who are often in the way. We allow false things to crowd out what God wants to do in us. So revival is God's power, God's presence, God's leadership, God's guidance, God's, God's people, taking God's people and using them for his work, for the goals God has. Revival is us having that take place. It's not adding people or dollars or counts or kids. It's, revival doesn't just mean more people. Revival means more like Jesus. And when we become more like Jesus, God uses us to reach others. And so when we talk about revival, what we're looking at is where are we getting in the way of God using us for his glory? Where is it that God wants revival to take place through us and the only thing stopping him is us? Is that we look like just the rest of the world around us. And so as we do that, we're just going to keep kind of pressing into that. A couple weeks ago, we talked about just being able to hold more than one thing in our minds at the same time that you can believe this is right and this is right and you don't have to join a political side. That you can just aim at what is right, what God has called us to do. And sometimes that will offend this side and sometimes it'll offend this side. Sometimes it'll just offend everybody. Sometimes everyone will disagree with you. And I'm not saying being offensive is following God. I'm just saying that when we do something different, not everyone will love what we're doing. But as we do what God has called us to do, we need to remember that there are sometimes things that we need to hold that are seemingly, because of our culture, intention. But they're not. Isaiah 57 begins, we'll, we'll start in verse 1 here, where it says, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He, meaning the righteous man, enters into peace, the rest in their beds... They rest in their beds who walk in uprightness. Isaiah is now looking at the people of God. He is speaking to us and he's asking us, hey, I need you to be different than the world. God is calling you to be different than the world around you. And here's his place, his first place where he steps in. He says this, that the righteous, the truly righteous men and women are disappearing from God's people and no one even notices when we look at this, what is a truly righteous person? Someone who is truly righteous is always seeking to do what God would have them to do. A truly righteous person isn't crowded into one political camp or the other. The truly righteous will look beyond at the issues, at the things that are taking place, at the world around them, and they will only see what God is calling them to do rather than being trapped into one side or the other. We've talked about the prison of two ideas, that either you're for this, that makes you against this, or you're for this, it makes you against this. And as Christians, we just need to be bigger than that. That is the world. That is, that is everything in the world that is pushing us towards more and more division. But God is calling us to be united. God is calling us to live for him and him alone. 
And so as Christians, we need to be bigger than the two-team system. We need to lay down the jerseys and just say, okay, really, the only team I'm on is Team Jesus, and what is God calling us to do? How do we look like that and not the world around us? And so Isaiah's first caution to us as we ask the question today, how is it that we're getting in the way of God using us? What are we doing? He says, the righteous are disappearing, and you don't even notice. Where is the righteous person who sees beyond the political lenses? Where is the the righteous person that no matter how other people talk on social media, we speak with kindness and love, even when we're disagreeable, or even when we disagree, we're not disagreeable. How do we learn how to speak rather than speaking like everybody else around us, speaking any way we want to speak and think we can possibly be pleasing Jesus at that moment? How do we find our way beyond what is normal in the world right now to be who Jesus has called us to be? Here's a note for you. If you're a note taker, it's, it's about losing the righteous. Isaiah shows the unmourned loss of truly righteous people. These are men and women who advocate for God's will, even against their own people. When I say own people, that could be own political party, it could be own race, could be own socioeconomic status, own nation, own whatever whoever your people are, that the truly righteous will advocate for God's will even against their own. When their loss is not mourned, when we lose the righteous and no one mourns it, it is because they're not missed and revival is far away. When the righteous people leave, when they leave the conversation, when, we leave, when they leave the world, when they leave engaging in whatever the issue is and no one misses them, we know we're further and further away from Jesus. When those who find their way beyond the the structures, beyond the normal, beyond the talking points, beyond what one channel or the other channel will tell you in the media, beyond what this politician or this politician who are seemingly always against each other, beyond what they say, The truly righteous will advocate for God's will. And when we lose them and don't miss them, it shows us how far away from God we truly are. Verse 3, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. So God is speaking to his people. Again, and we say this every week or most weeks. God is speaking to us. God isn't loading us up with bullets we're supposed to shoot at people outside. God is speaking to us. This should pierce our heart. This should transform us, not us go out on the street corner and tell everybody else how they're wrong. God is speaking to his people, saying, here's what's wrong with you. Is it wrong with the world? It is. Do they need to fix that? They need to meet Jesus. Let Jesus fix that. We know Jesus and still have the problem. That's what Isaiah is saying. That the change must come inside of us. And so he calls us the son and daughters of sorcerers and the offspring of adulterers. And so here's the image today that is going to be throughout the rest of this passage. God is using the image of marriage and sexual fidelity or sexual faithfulness. That marriage is between one man and one woman. And that the rest of our physical side of that is to be lived out there. And that infidelity, cheating, breaks that marriage. And almost all of us have been cheated on at some point in our life. And we know that, that heartache. And we know that feeling in our stomach that we, can't, that we can't shake because of the pain and anger and mourning and loss. 
And God is saying, when you live like the rest of the world, when you do the things the rest of the world does, when you live like them, you are actually worshiping idols and you are cheating on me. You are being unfaithful to me, God says. So then he calls them the sons or daughters of sorcerers. And I'm just going to, again, we take what they're doing 2,700 years ago when they're reading it, when, they're, when this is first being taught to people. And we take that and we contextualize it today. We use the example often of widows and orphans. Care for the widow of orphans, Isaiah says. And yes, we still have orphans and yes, we still have widows. But in that context, it's the people that are the most vulnerable. Fast forward to today, it's the single parent and the foster kid most of the time. And so we learn from it and we import it into our context, figure out how are we doing the very same thing. Fortunately, the Old Testament talks about all the things that we need to hear in our context today. So I'm going to give you, I'm just going to go through three quick verses, giving you an idea of how we worship falsely. So 1 Chronicles 10 says this, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. So Saul, King Saul goes out and seeks out a psychic and a medium to get guidance from that person rather than getting guidance from God. That's what Chronicles tells us, that he broke faith and this is what he did. Deuteronomy says, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. That we don't go outside of God to go find our direction. That we don't go outside of God to go find our healing. That we don't go outside of God to get more learning. We continually press into God. Isaiah 47 says, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Here's what he's saying. You're going out and asking everybody but me. So when you come and pray to me, just keep asking somebody else. Because I'm going to quit listening until you abandon everyone else. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. What's he talking about there? Astrology. In every newspaper today, I think, if anybody actually still reads a newspaper, right? Super common in the Christian church to people, even if they're just joking around about it, like, oh, I just read my horoscope today, or I'm this, or I'm that, or this, you know, this person is like this, or I'm more suited to this kind of person. Even in the church, even when people don't take it seriously, they still do it. It would be like saying, hey, I have a girlfriend, but I tell my wife, I just don't take it too seriously. That's why she's at home, and I'm here saying that, right? <laughs> God is saying, you're cheating on me. You're repeatedly being unfaithful to me when you live like the world around you, like you press into the Eastern mysticisms, or you press into the other religions, or you do this, and you try and find your guidance from the stars, or the dead, or psychics, or whatever. That's how you're cheating on me, God says. And the idea is you're more like the world around you than you are like my children. Here's a note for you. Common false worship today. So Christians commonly engage in false practices like astrology, medium, psychics, and energy healing like Reiki and crystals and more. Wrongly seeking guidance, instruction, or healing, which only God can do for us. 
wrongly seeking other avenues to find things that only God can do for us. Only God can tell us what lies in front of us. Only God can heal us. Has he given us medicine? Yes. Has he given us crystals and Reiki? No, right? That only God, that God is the source of what we are, of our health, of our teaching, of our guidance, of our future, of our past. God says, seek me, seek nothing else. Verse four, he says, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? He says, you are mocking me when you do this. When you look to the stars to figure out what you should do, don't you know I made the stars? Are you mocking me, the creator, and following the created things? In first service, we said it's as simple as, or as crazy as, call it what you want, as taking a piece of wood and carving out an idol with your own hands. You take this, or metal, or whatever, and you carve out something, and then you set it up, you light a candle, and worship the thing you just made. How crazy is that? You made it. Can it fix you? No, you have to fix it. And yet we worship created things all day, every day, be it finance or power or astrology or psychic or this or that or whatever, that we worship created things. That's what Paul talks about. We've traded in worship for the, of the creator for worship of created things. God says, lift your eyes up above the stars. That's me. I hung them in place. I know them by name. He says, when you do this, you cheat on me. You break our marriage. You break our bond because you sleep around with your idols. That's his image today for this whole passage. Verse 5, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the cleft rocks. Here's what he says. Some of you are doing this hidden in the valleys, hidden in the clefts. In a minute, he'll say, and the rest of you are up on the mountain, up on the mountaintop, because you don't even have any shame. But he pauses, and he gives them another way that they're like the culture, like the world around them. He says, you who slaughter your children. Last week, we had a very frank, one-sided, just open conversation about what it means to have injustice against black people, that they are feeling the weight of an injustice differently than any other community even other colors of people, other people groups, that there is something going on in our culture, and it has been for a long time, and that injustice does take place among the black community, and that we as a church need to get beyond the two-team solution that isn't working for anybody, especially black people. And for our church, it's not for us. We don't fit in a political party. We only fit in Christ. And so we talked about that there are injustices in the world, and that we don't have to say, hey, I'm opposed to this death or this mistreatment or this injustice. And we don't have to back it up with, but I love police. We know that. We know we're for the law. We know all those things. It's time to stand up against injustice. And so last week, we spoke frankly about this issue. This week, we have another issue. And like last week and the week before, it's as pronounced in the church as it is outside the church. And it's obvious, it is the injustice done to unborn life. Here it is. So I'm going to give you scripture. We're going to keep this in, in the Bible. 
Job 31 says, did, he, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Not only is God speaking to us being made and, and created by him, but this is also another passage for race. Did God who made me in the womb, didn't he also make her in the womb and him in the womb and her in the womb and him in the womb? Yes, same God made us all. It's a reminder that God created us equal, that God made us, though different, equal. But it also reminds us that God created us before we even knew a life was there. Jeremiah 1, God speaking to Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb. So before conception, before I made you, he says, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I made you. I mapped out your life. I gave you a purpose. I knit you together. And before all that, I knew you. I knew you. You know, before the heartbeat, I knew you. Before birth and breath, I knew you. I made you, God says. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. You made my days even before I had days. You made me. You gave me life even before there was any form, any heartbeat, any anything. I know that there was a round of probably in the last year, it seems like 25 years with coronavirus, right? It seems like dog years we live in right now. But remember, all these things were going around last year. It was probably only six, seven, eight months ago about heartbeat laws, right? The conservatives were finally stepping up and saying, listen, man, if there's a heartbeat, there's a life. Can we all agree on that? Well, before there's a heartbeat, there's a life. And before there's a heartbeat, God created. And before there is breath, for those that would say it's all the way up until this, till they, till they all partial birth abortion, whatever, hear me when I say God had a plan long before all of that. So here's a note for you. Before breath or heartbeats, God teaches us that a baby in the womb is alive, being made by him and has a purpose from God. God gives equality to every child in the womb. As Mother Teresa said, a nation that kills its children in the womb has lost its soul. When we will eliminate the most vulnerable, we have lost our soul. When we watch a black man die on TV at the hands of a cop and we politicize it, we've lost our soul. Church, we are no different than the world around us in many of these cases. We politicize, we team up, we can't just see right or wrong. We are so corrupted by the world around us, we look just like them. Our post match our, you know, our conservative post match our conservative buddy atheist post. And our liberal posts match our atheist, liberal, Buddhist buddies posts or whatever. You get my point. And we argue and talk back and forth as if there's no Jesus in our life. And we can't just say right or wrong. We can't just pursue what's wrong. We can't just say what's right. We can't just do what's right. We always find ourselves divided. So I want to be clear about this. When, you know, politically, they will talk about women's rights. Listen, I think women have lots of rights. I think women have a right to sleep with who they want to sleep with. And when they say no, it's no, right? 
that no should be no, and we should figure that out as guys. I think women have a right to what they're doing. I think right have a right to their birth control, to limits. I don't, of course, something that would take place after conception, I would oppose. But women have lots of rights, but they lose that right when something is birthed, when something is conceived, when something is life. And when it's in the womb, even before the heartbeat, there is life. There are a lot of rights, but they don't supersede the rights of that unborn child. Like you can argue today, there's the rights of these people, but we're talking about the infringed rights of these people. In this case, women have lots of rights. They have lots of things they can do. But there's a child that has rights too, roughly half of them being female. We've got to change. When we do this, we've lost our soul. When the church doesn't look any different than the world, no wonder God can't use us, or no, no wonder even God won't use us. Verse 6, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. <clears throat> Again, the image is infidelity. The image is the breaking of that marriage. The image is us cheating on God. Some down in the valley in quiet places and clefts, some up on the mountain, high, bare, open, and a wide bed, he says. We see this as we look at people. People champion the things that are so opposite to God. I remember watching the abortion conversations as the heartbeat laws were being talked about. And I remember women, famous women, actresses and others screaming about how that is their right and championing how they are so glad they aborted. And you just watch this and then you read this passage and you look at people and you're like, man, you are just even, and, and I want to limit this now to Christians and Christians are doing the same things. If we weren't, we wouldn't be talking about it. We champion how far away from God we are. We brag about how far away from God we are. We say those things. I watch this as the racial conversations still take place, and I watch that people I know profess Jesus. I watch them say things that if you were black in America, you would not know that they cared about you, but that they cared about Jesus at all. Our conversations aren't very different than the world around us, and yet we are supposed to be radically different. Verse 8, behind the door on the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You welcome in a lot, he's saying. And you have made a covenant with yourself to, to with them, and you have loved their bed, and you have looked on nakedness. Verse 9, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You get the image here. We don't have to say that in front of the kids, right? Okay, you got it. All right. There we go. That's the one, right? You sent your envoys far off and sent it even down to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength so that you were not faint. He's like, when you did this and you realized how this was not working and how dumb this was that you were worshiping this created thing, like when you got to that point, instead of stopping and saying, okay, this is really dumb, 
You renewed your strength and gave new life to your pursuit. He says, you would much rather fail than return to me. That when you realized it was hopeless, you kept going. When you realized it was crazy what you were doing, what you were believing, what you were thinking, what you were saying, when you realized it, you continued to go forward. And instead of returning to me, you renewed your strength against me. Verse 11, whom do you dread? Whom did you, who did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, and did not lay it to heart, God says? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? God is asking two questions. Like, who is it you fear more than me? Like, who is it that you fear? Like, any answer you can give, God's like, I created that. You fear the mountain lion? Did it, right? You fear the earthquake? Yep, me too. Feel that dude, fear that dude around the corner? Made him too, right? He may not look like me, but I'm in control. Who do you fear more than me? God says, the creator of everything. And then he said this, how long do you think I will put up with a cheating wife? When he looks at you and I and he says, how long will I put up with your betrayal? And lays it out in such stark terms, so clear a picture for us to understand. How long? Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. In other words, I will say what is true about you. It is not good. I will talk about what you're doing. It is not good. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Here's what he's saying. Here's one of those crazy warnings in the Bible again that just give me fear at times. He says this, when you're doing this, when you're worshiping other things, when you're doing other things, when you're giving your heart to someone or something other than me, and it comes time to pray, save it. I'm not listening. Go pray to this. Words we never want to hear from God is, I don't want to hear your prayers. He says, when you cry out, verse 13, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Here's what God says. You want to go do that? When you get to crisis, go figure that out. Now, there's a fine line here. There's a balance in between here. Because when we come to Christ, we're all equally separated from God. We're all equally guilty. And it isn't even like you take my background and your background, and yours is probably better than mine. And it's not like you were any closer to Jesus than I was when I came to faith. Problems and all. Apart from Christ, we are all equally apart from God. In Christ, we are all equally reconciled to God. So it's not about what you've done or what you're doing. It's about which way are you facing. When Jesus is here and you're running this way, but you stop and you turn, Jesus is here. It doesn't matter how far away you get. It doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter what you've done. It just matters that you're turned back and you're pointing towards Jesus. He's there. Yeah, that's good, right? It doesn't matter. We're all equally sinful. We're all equally in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter what you've done. Don't buy into the lie that you're not good enough or you're not loved enough or Jesus has forgotten you. We are all equally welcome back but when the believer continues to run that direction away from Jesus, he says, take your prayers somewhere else. Go pray to that thing you're chasing after. Let's see how that works out for you. 
When you're ready, turn. Verse 14, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So remember, right now, Isaiah 56 to 66, the final 11 chapters of this book is about God desiring to bring revival through his people. And again, revival often treated in churches as more numbers, more people, more baptisms, more dollars is not what God's talking about. He's talking about more of his presence among his people, more his people look like him. He's talking about blessing and power and usefulness. When, when we are useful by God, he will use us to reach others. That doesn't mean it's about the numbers. It means it's about us, that we are useful when we are obedient, when we look like Jesus. And we will never fully look like Jesus until we are with Jesus. But in the meantime, it's where we're pointed. It's how repentant are we willing to be of the things we do wrong. As we aim this way, as Isaiah reminds us that this is about God's people being useful to God, being used by God. That we remember it's not about us hearing these things and then going and, and doing something out there that's about them. It's about us changing us so that we can live in such a way that they will see Jesus. It's about us no longer aborting. It's about us no longer having astrology and mediums and psychics and whatever else. It's about us changing us. It's about us seeing injustice and loving justice. It's about us seeing the flaws and pursuing righteousness, meaning doing the right thing, whatever that might be. It's us laying down the team jerseys and saying, you know what? Neither one of them look like Jesus anymore, even if they ever did, and doing the next right thing. That's revival. That's what brings about revival. And God says, right now, the only thing between me, you, and revival is you. It's that you've given yourself away to so many other things, I can't use you. But his call shifts here. He says, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Get rid of the things that are blocking this. Just get rid of them from my people. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, that's God the Father, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him, meaning Jesus, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive, this is us, the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is saying God, who is holy, has brought us Jesus, who was humble and contrite and low, that we could see God. That Jesus came and lived the life you and I are called to live, but we fail. That Jesus entered into our story, because we were never going to make it to him. And so he came and he lived a sinless life and he died our death, the death we deserve, he took in our place. The punishment we deserve, he took on our behalf to reconcile us with a holy God. As he is buried, our sins are covered. And that, that divorced relationship between humanity who is sinful and God who is holy, that, that relationship is restored. And in Christ, as Jesus rose from the grave, we get new lives. We get to begin to live new ways. And Christianity is not me plus a little Jesus, and that's it. It's me. Everything changed. Everything has to go. It's new life, not an improved version of your old life. Resurrection is new life. It's not an improved version of what you had. 
And as Jesus ascends back to his throne and pours out his spirit upon us, he equips us to live that new life. And then he calls us to do so. And he says, no longer live like the world. Live like your mind. Let all that go. Live for me. Psalm 51 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, all of us are sinful. All of us are broken. All of us are flawed. If you're here or you're live streaming right now and you're not a follower of Jesus, understand this, we know we're broken. We know we're flawed. We'll be the first ones to tell you we don't have it all together. But we know Jesus who does. And our right response is a broken and contrite heart that we come to God repentant, that we come knowing we need change. We don't come and just say, hey man, those people are crazy, they need change. Like we just admit our craziness first our brokenness first. And then we pray that God will change us and make us usable so that others might see him. Verse 16, he says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. God says this, I will not put up with it forever. God has been telling the people over and over again, you look more like the world than look like, looking like me. You look more like them than you do like my children. I won't wait forever. That call for thousands of years of people to return and history, human history is this kind of like people start to follow God and then they fall away and then they start to follow God and they fall away. And it's this relentless pursuit of God. And he blesses them when they're near and repentant and he lifts his hand off of them when they're running away. And he reminds us, return. He would say the same thing to us today in the church. Return to me. Come back. Look like my children. Stop looking like everyone around you. We talked about Saul earlier as we looked at Chronicles. Saul became a king because the people wanted a king like their neighbors. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And instead of having God lead them, they wanted a king. That didn't go super well for them. But it's an image of what we do. We want to be like the world around us. We don't want to stand out. God says, no, I need you to stand out. I need you to be distinct. I need you to be different. I need there to be a people that look like me so that the world can see me. Verse 17, it says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. There's this reminder that in every Christian church, no matter how heavy the message is, or no matter what is being called out, no matter how far away from God we find ourselves, the message in every Christian church pivots and turns towards Jesus. It pivots and it turns towards hope because never are we left over here if we don't want to be. We don't just have to hear about all the ugly, all the sin, all the problem, all the brokenness in us, and then just get left there. Instead, it pivots, and God says, I want to heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort. He's saying, return to me. Turn away from that. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, then it would say, turn to me for the first time. In this case, it's people that should already be facing Jesus. And he's saying, listen, return. Our, our right response is repentance. It's always turning back towards Jesus. And when our lives are just heavy with the burdens of the world and the burdens of our sin, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call is come to Jesus. The call is always come back to Jesus, return to Jesus, come to Jesus for the first time. Verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. There's that promise, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, I've seen you, but I will heal you. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the fruit of lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is a callback to the first verse where God says, here's the problem with my people. The righteous are disappearing and nobody even notices but I will heal him. I've seen his ways. I'll restore him. I'll give him peace. When the righteous return, God says, I will lead them. I will restore them. I will heal them. I will fix them. I will make them the righteous if they return. But God closes with this, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. For the righteous who return, peace, peace, God says. He repeats himself, showing the emphasis of peace, being reconciled to God. Peace is not the absence of war, it's the presence of God. That we are restored to God. But for the wicked, there is no peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. There's no reason any of us could be here starting with me without you. There is nothing good in me apart from you. And yet somehow you have seen fit to use me. You do so so that everyone will know all can come, all can be, all can change. Anyone who would lay down their false worship, who would lay down, oftentimes our biggest false worship is ourself, the worship of what we want to the exclusion of what you want. When things don't go quick enough or happen the way we want them to, God, we will pursue anything else. As Calvin said, our hearts are factories for idols. We churn out idols every day, new things to give our heart to, new things we worship, and God, we must repent of that. We must turn from that. And in doing so, we turn towards you. We turn towards you, Jesus, and you welcome us back. You promise beautiful things. I will forgive. I will heal. I will comfort. I will restore. I will redeem. And I will give peace. And when collectively we begin to do this, God, you say, I will bring revival. I will use my people to glorify my name. Let Generations Church be that. Let us be distinct from the world around us. Let us be useful by you. Let us be drawn near. Let us be healed and redeemed people. Let us see beyond the world because the world is collapsing around us. The world is broken. We confess we've, we've added to the brokenness, God. Help us now be a part of the solution. Let us be a people of peace. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.